this uh, passage for this week, I, I wrestled with what to preach from, because last week we saw in chapter 9, the people gather together and confess their sins. And as I look forward in the upcoming uh, chapters, I saw that most of the next three chapters were lists of names repeated over and over again. If you just take a look at chapter 10, you'll see uh, right at the beginning there's a list of names, then there's a break, and then you get to chapter 11, and almost the entire chapter is a list of names. And then chapter 12 begins with a large list of names, and then the end of chapter 12 uh, has a little bit more of narrative. And so, if you look in your bulletin, you'll see that our passage today is Nehemiah chapters 10 through 12. But lest we be here uh, all afternoon, uh, I will not be reading the entire thing. So, uh, if you want to follow along uh, in your Bible, and I would encourage you to open up your Bible and, and follow along anyway uh, today, because I will be uh, looking specifically at certain sections of these chapters, um, I'm going to begin by reading chapter 9, verse 38, which I think technically more goes with chapter 10. And then uh, I'll read uh, chapter 9, uh, verse 38 through 10, 2. And then I'm going to jump down to 10:28 through 11:2, and then we'll look at 12:27 through 47. So still quite a bit of text. Hear the word of the Lord. <clears throat> it says, "Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites and our priests." And then I'll just read a couple of the names here. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah, the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, and Jeremiah. And then you see there's a long list of names there. And then at uh, chapter 10, verse 28, it says, The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses to the, the servant of God and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the ex exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our father's houses at the times appointed, year by year, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. 
We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree, year by year, to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Then right here at the beginning of chapter 11, it says, Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy, holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Now skip down to chapter 12, verse 27. At the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem... They sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Natophonites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmath. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem, and the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that gave thanks. One went to the south on the wall to the dung gate, and after them went Hoshiah and half of the leaders of Judah and Azariah, Ezra, Meshullam, Judah. Benjamin, Shemaiah, and Jeremiah, and certain of the priests' sons, with trumpets, Zechariah, the son of Jonathan, son of Shemaiah, son of Mataniah, son of Micaiah, son of Zachor, son of Asaph, and his relatives, Shemaiah, Azarel, Maliah, Gilai, Maiah, Nathaniel, Judah, and Hanani, with the musical instruments of David, the man of God, and Ezra the scribe went before them. At the fountain gate, they went up straight before them by the stairs of the city of David, at the ascent of the wall, above the house of David, to the water gate on the east. The other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north, and I followed them with half of the people on the wall, above the tower of the ovens, to the broad wall, and above the gate of Ephraim, and by the gate of Yashana, and by the fish gate, and the tower of Hananel, to the tower of the hundred, to the sheep gate, and they came to a halt at the gate of the guard. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me, and the priests Eliakim, Maseah, Miniamen, Micaiah, Elioni, Zechariah, and Hananiah, with the trumpets, and Maseah, 
Shemaiah, Eleazar, Uzi, Jehoanan, Malchijah, Elam, and Ezer. And the singers sang with Jezriah as their leader, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. On that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. Well, if we go back to Nehemiah chapter 8, we see that Ezra's ministry, Ezra had been there for 13 years prior to Nehemiah showing up. And, and as you recall, I, I think it was largely Ezra's ministry. Remember, Ezra showed up preaching and teaching the law of God. It was his desire that the people would understand God's law and come to know him and obey him better. And what we saw in chapter 8 was that the people's hearts had been changed and they came as a group. And they asked Ezra to bring out the book of the law of God. And as we recall, there was a six-hour sermon preached. The Levites gave the sense. It was basically an expository sermon for six hours. And after they heard God's law preached, after they heard what it meant, after they heard what it was that God was calling them to, how God was the righteous one and the holy one, and how they understood how far short they had fallen, what did they do? All of the people began to weep because they realized their sinfulness when the law of God was read and explained. There is no human being, save for one, no human being who has ever lived on planet Earth who when he or she hears the law of God and rightly understands the exactness and the righteousness and the perfection of the law of God, walks away from understanding that, thinking that they've done a good job in obeying the law of God. Not one, except Christ. No one actually walks away believing that they have fulfilled the law. Romans chapter 3 says that very thing says, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So when the people heard the law of God read and explained, they understood the depth of their sin, and it brought them to a time of great weeping. Now remember, as they were weeping, Ezra and Nehemiah came out and said, don't weep. This isn't a time for weeping, it's a time for rejoicing. Why? Not because you're not as bad as you think you are, 
Not because God's law isn't as severe as you just heard, but because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And they were reminded that God, in his mercy, had reached down and in his joy over his people had saved them out of the desperation that they were in. They were reminded of this and then they celebrated the Day of Atonement 10 days later, which reminded them that God had taken away their sin through a sacrifice. Nevertheless, even knowing that God rejoiced in them, even knowing that the Day of Atonement had passed, and even having just celebrated the Feast of Booths, which celebrated God's great rescue of them out of slavery, we saw in chapter 9, they confessed their sin. They confessed their sin and, and went back and looked at the history of Israel and all the ways that they had been wicked and nevertheless God had been faithful. And we looked at that in chapter 9. And what do we see at the end of chapter 9? They conclude in verse 7, 37 by saying, we are in great distress. They were going over their history, looking at the fact that they had been unfaithful, they had been wicked, and God had been faithful. And nonetheless, even though they were here back in Jerusalem, they understood that not all was totally right, that they were still under the dominion of the Persian authority, that they had no king in Jerusalem, that it hadn't yet fully been restored to the way it was before. And they summed it up by saying, we are in great distress. And then in that verse 38 that I think goes better with chapter 10, they say, because of all of this, everything they just went over, today we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And what you see them do here, when they recount the righteousness of God and their own sinfulness and how far short they've fallen, they basically decide to renew the Mosaic Covenant. They think back to the covenant and the law that God gave them on Mount Sinai, and they decide to recommit themselves to obeying the law and to following God. We see this happen actually earlier in Israel's history, pr uh, prior to the exile. If you go back and if you read through 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings, you'll see different times when people are confronted with their own sin. And for instance, David is confronted by the prophet Nathan. And when David is confronted with his own sin and told, you are the man, David falls and repents of his sin. And what we see in a sort of corporate way happen is when King Josiah, a good king, uh, is, ha has a man cleaning out the temple and the man finds the book of the law. And he brings it. Uh, you get this picture that the book of the law was somewhere in a corner with cobwebs uh, over it. And he pulls it out and reads it to Josiah. And Josiah, being reminded again, of God's holiness falls down and weeps before God and then institutes a bunch of reforms. That was prior to the exile, which means that Israel once again fell back into sin despite Josiah's uh, remedies. The people here, when they decide to make this firm covenant, what I talked about a few weeks ago in, in a prior sermon is they are brought to essentially repentance. Repentance, again, as I mentioned, is not simply feeling bad for your sin. Repentance is not regret. Lots of people feel bad for things they do wrong. I mentioned in that sermon, Judas 
Judas Iscariot felt very bad for what he had done. He said, I've betrayed innocent blood. But rather than repent, he regretted what he had done and went and hung himself. Repentance, as Westminster Catechism question 87 says, what is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace by which a sinner, having truly realized his sin and grasped the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. And that's what you see them doing. Essentially, they confess their sin, and now they are in the process of repenting of their sin. They're turning from their sin and turning towards obedience to God. And what we see here in chapter 10, from verses 1 all the way down to verse 29, we see that it encompasses everybody. It's not just a handful of people, but it says all the people here in Judah decide to do this renewal of the covenant. The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants. And then you see this statement here, all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God. Scholars point out that that phrase, all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, that phrase there is a picture of repentance because what that's referring to are the pagans who have decided to turn and enter into covenant with the people of Israel. That they're not native-born Jews, but they're the peoples of the lands who have turned from their own pagan ways to obey and serve the law of God. Now, when they renew this covenant, and this now is in chapter 10 here, beginning at verse 28, all the way down to the end of the chapter, you see what it is that they obligate themselves to do. It's a long, you know, somewhat longish section here, and it goes into great detail. But if you want to sum it up, they basically uh, commit themselves to three things that they specifically highlight. Now, they say, look, we want to obey the entire law of God, but the three things that they highlight are we're not going to intermarry any longer with pagans, which we've already seen has been a problem. They say we're going to keep the Sabbath day. And we're also going to keep the Sabbath year, which I'll talk about in a minute. And then they also commit to supporting the temple and its work. So those are the three things, really, if you boil it down, that they commit to doing. <clears throat> One of the things that you see that's very interesting here, many scholars point this out, is that if you look at the details of what they're saying, they are not applying the law of Moses exactly as it's been written in the past, but they are modifying it somewhat to adjust for their own day and age. They're modifying the law of Moses. Now, they're not modifying it in a bad way. They're not looking at Moses' law and saying, we see what God says here, but we're going to take a little bit out so that we can do what we want and just cast aside whatever Moses' law says that we don't want to abide by. What they're doing here is they're applying the law of Moses, they're applying the spirit of the law. They're applying the spirit of the law, what the law actually meant to their own day and age in order that they may actually obey the law of Moses. 
the spirit of what that law meant. Because in that day, there were loopholes that people were finding so that they could technically follow the law of Moses, but not really. What were some of these loopholes? Well, for instance, when the covenant was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, and God commanded Israel not to intermarry with the nations around them, by Nehemiah's day, Ezra and Nehemiah's day, most of those nations were no longer in existence. So an Israelite could say to themselves, well, I'm not intermarrying with any of these. They're no longer around. All I'm doing is marrying a, a pagan Persian, which isn't even listed in the law of Moses. So you see, what they could do is skirt God's law, marry a pagan Persian, and thereby fulfill the law of God. And so what do we see them doing here? They say, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land, whoever they are. In this case, right now, they're talking about Persians. We're not going to give our daughters to the Persians or take their daughters for our sons. They are applying the spirit of the law. Another example is when the covenant was originally given to Moses, the command was for them not to work on the Sabbath. Well, they found sort of a loophole here. What they decided to do was begin trading with other peoples of the land on the Sabbath, thereby still keeping their business going and still making a wage and all of these things, saying, hey, we're not the ones working. It's the pagan people over here that are doing the work. I'm just trading with them. That's all. I'm not disobeying God's law. Well, what you see here in verse 31 is they say, if the peoples of the land bring in goods, if they bring any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. What they're doing is they're closing these potential loopholes by applying the spirit of the law to their day and age. Again, what they are doing was a good thing. They were actually trying to fulfill God's law. Interestingly, though, some scholars think that this was essentially the seed bed that was sown that ended up uh, blooming into what we knew as, and come to know later in the New Testament, as Pharisaicalism. That basically what happens here by amending God's law slightly leads to these Jewish sects that would begin later, and we see them in uh, the New Testament era when Jesus comes on the scene. And what, you, what do you see? You see the Pharisees, what are they doing? They're building fences around the law. They're saying, yeah, God's law says don't work on the Sabbath. We don't know exactly what that means, so we're going to tell you that you can only take so many steps on the Sabbath. We're going to tell you that to fulfill the law, if you lift up something that weighs more than 10 pounds, you've worked on the Sabbath. They, they've built, they built all of these fences around the law and essentially turned God's law into legalism. But it turned God's law, interestingly, not into something that was the spirit of the law, but something that was the exact opposite of the law. What the Pharisees ended up doing was turning God's law into something that you could obey by following all of these man-made rules. And so it turned people into people who didn't obey the spirit of the law, 
obeyed man-made rules that they said fulfilled the law and then turned them into self-righteous people who looked down on all the people that didn't do what they did. And so when Jesus came along, he actually had to shatter the Pharisees' man-made laws and reinstitute the spirit of the law. (laughs) Remember when Jesus came along, he said, you've heard it say, don't commit adultery. I say if you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. That's the spirit of the law. It doesn't mean that you can walk around and fantasize about every woman you see and therefore you haven't broken God's law. No, that's not what God's law means. Jesus said, you've heard it say you shall not murder. I tell you, if you walk around hating every person you come across, you've murdered them already in your heart. You've broken God's law already. Jesus reinstituted the spirit of the law, which is what was going on here. What we see here is that they begin to commit themselves to things that obviously they had gotten away from. In the Mosaic law, God commanded the Israelites to not work, to not work their land. They had land. Do not work your land in the seventh year. The Israelites were commanded to let their land lie there in in the seventh year, to not work it, to not till it, to not plant, to not grow anything, to leave it alone. We see in Exodus 23, for six years you will sow your land, gather its yield, but in the seventh year you let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. Do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. God was saying, let this lie. But what did he say? He says in Leviticus 25, if you say, what are we going to eat in the seventh year? If we don't sow or gather in our crop, God said, I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. Remember manna. God said, you collect, you don't, I'm going to provide enough for you for the seventh day. Don't worry about it. He's saying essentially the same thing here. You don't work your field in the seventh year. I want you to take a Sabbath, but I will provide for you. Your land will produce enough in the sixth year so that you have enough for the entire seventh year and the next year to come, if you trust me. We also see that God commanded the Israelites to forgive debts in the seventh year. Deuteronomy 15, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. This is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. And what you see them doing here in Nehemiah's day is they've basically gotten away, I think, ultimately from trusting God. That all of these things that they were doing, they highlight the fact that they had no faith and no trust in God anymore. Because if you, you think about the situation they were in, they were a, a, a ragtag group of people that lived in a shambles of a town in, in Nowhereville in Persia with a burnt down walls, no temple. They're rebuilding from scratch. They had been exiled and destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and they're trying to rebuild. It would be very helpful for them if they could intermarry with the pagan neighbors and get on the social ladder and climb up the social ladder. It would be very helpful for them to trade with pagans on the Sabbath, to enrich themselves. It would be very helpful for them if they just continued working their land and never let it rest. 
all of these things that they were engaging in, I think, betrayed a lack of trust in God. They failed to trust that God would provide. And so it's interesting that if you look at everything that they're focusing on here, it all returns to trusting in God. And we, we can look at it as they're committing themselves to obey God's law, but I think underneath all of that is a renewed faith in God and a renewed trust in God. Because by committing to tithing, by committing to giving God their first fruits, by committing to not working the land in the seventh year, by committing to not marrying pagans, by committing to forgiving all debts, by committing to all of these things, they're essentially saying two things. They're saying, God, you own everything that I have. You own my land, you own my money, you own me, you own my life. And because you own everything that I have, the second thing they're saying is, I'm going to trust you with everything that I have. You've lent these things to me as a steward. I don't own any of these things. If you tell me to let my land lie for the seventh year, who am I to disagree with you? The land is your land, it's not mine. If you tell me to forgive debts, who am I to say no? That's your debt. <laughs> this is money that you've given me. If you're telling me to forgive it, why should I disobey you? I will trust you with my situation. I will trust you with everything I have. I will trust you with everything that I am. And I will hand it all over to you. Does that sound like you this morning? I mean, it... It challenged me this week. Are you entrusting everything in your life to God? Is there a part of your life, maybe it's your money, maybe it's your job, maybe it's your family or your kids, are there things in your life that you're trying to hold on to yourself as your own property and say, I have to do something with this? I can't obey God in this area. I have to make whatever happen. Remember, a distrust of God, distrusting what God says was at the heart of the very first sin. Satan challenged Adam and Eve with what? You can't trust what God says. God says you'll die, you will not surely die. It was a challenge of God's word right from the start. And Israel was being challenged to distrust God. And so they've gone back to renew this covenant. And they're demonstrating here a renewed faith and trust in God. And what we see when we skip all the way to chapter 12, we see that God demonstrates again his faithfulness to these people. Chapter 11 shows a repopulation of the city of Jerusalem. It was basically a ghost town. Nobody wanted to live there. Who wanted to live in a burned down city? But what we see is that by casting lots and by the people agreeing, they went ahead and uh, resettled in Jerusalem. And so you see Jerusalem coming back to life. Nehemiah chapter 12 is really kind of the capstone of this entire saga bringing it full circle and demonstrating God's mercy and his faithfulness to his promises. Because as we have pointed out many times throughout this series, Ezra and Nehemiah are one story. If you take them as one book, you see this amazing fulfillment of promises that God gives. 
Again, even before the dedication, which is, begins in chapter 12, 27, from verses 1 to 26, look at this list. The list, if you look at chapter 12, verse 1, it begins not with the priests and the Levites who were there during Nehemiah and Ezra's day. It begins with the priests and Levites that arrived with Zerubbabel and Jeshua. It goes all the way back to the beginning of this saga, back to the beginning of Ezra. And then beginning at verse 27, the wall is finally complete, and there is described here this huge celebration. One uh, guy I was listening to said it, it almost resembles a Disney parade. If you read it, that's what it resembles. It's this gigantic, kind of this big march and trumpets and cymbals and, and all these instruments and harps and lyres and singers. And there are these two great choirs. And there are these two processions, one led by Ezra and the other led by Nehemiah. And they go the whole circumference of the wall and they go opposite ways and they meet up at the temple at the end. And one of the things you see here as these huge processions are marching on top of the wall is that God has gone far beyond fulfilling his promises. Remember when they began rebuilding this wall, what one of the jeers was thrown at them? That if a fox jumped on top of the wall, it would crumble? That's how weak the wall was? Now they've got people marching on top of the wall, huge throngs of people, and the wall is holding them up as they march toward the temple. If you go back to the beginning of Nehemiah, what did Nehemiah do when he first got there? Remember that night ride where he went around the perimeter of what used to be a wall and he started at the dung gate and kind of walked around and he looked at all of the destruction and the burned down gates and everything else? And what we see here is essentially Nehemiah begins at the same spot that he did on that night ride and then goes triumphantly on a wall that has been built and completed. They get around to the temple and what you see here at the very end here is that the temple is built, the wall is built, Jerusalem is being repopulated and there's a huge celebration that's occurring. And look at verse 43. It's amazing. Again, if you look at this as one work, it's amazing what God does here. In verse 43, it says, They offered great sacrifices that day, and they rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Look at how many ways the word joy is used in that one verse. Over and over and over again, joy, joy, joy. They were filled with great joy. They rejoiced. Everyone rejoiced. All the people rejoiced. The women and the children rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. And all you have to do is go back to Ezra chapter 3. When they first arrived and they first built and completed that rough-hewn, pitiful-looking foundation with nothing else around. And what does it say? All the people shouted with a great shout when they praised, and they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. That's all that was there. But many of the priests and Levites and head of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of the house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. 
so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. The exact same language. Only notice what's happened here. In the beginning, when the sound is heard far away, the people that are hearing the sound of God's people can't distinguish between the joy and the weeping. And now, after God has fulfilled all of his promises, there is only great joy. Not one cry to be heard. God has kept his promises. Notice, too, that this joy that they have is not something that they have to conjure up. It's not joy that they have to pretend. It's joy that God has put in them. God has given them great joy. And all we have to do is expand this a little bit beyond Ezra and Nehemiah, and we see just how amazingly God has kept his promises. Because you just go back to when they were exiled and Jerusalem was destroyed. And the God that promised that Israel would be destroyed if they continued sinning also promised that one day he would bring them back. And that all of this would happen. I think of the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem. He witnessed the destruction of the temple, and he died an old man in exile. You can imagine what he felt and what he thought as he said these words, as he was being led off into Egypt where he died in exile, after seeing the destruction of everything. Jeremiah promised this, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem into Babylon, when 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and I will bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. 100 years before Jeremiah, Isaiah the prophet said exactly how it would happen. Through the prophet Isaiah says, thus says the Lord, your redeemer who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord. I made all things. I alone stretch out the heavens. I spread out the earth by myself. And I say of Jerusalem, you will be inhabited. I say of the cities of Judah, they will be built. I will raise up their ruins. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He will fulfill all of my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. 100 years before Jeremiah said that it would happen in 70 years, Isaiah said how it would happen. That Cyrus the king of Persia would start the whole ball rolling. And in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says this, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Ezra 1 shows the Lord stirring up the spirit of Cyrus, and Nehemiah chapter 12 shows that everything that God said would happen has happened. 
unbelievable. Who would have thought when God was making these outlandish claims that all of this was going to happen? Who would have thought in that moment, I guarantee this is going to happen? How many doubted what God promised? I wonder if everyone did. I wonder if Jeremiah had some doubts as he was proclaiming what God was going to do. And in between all of it, in between when Cyrus made the decree and they're marching in triumphant procession to the temple full of joy, was it smooth sailing? Did everything go hunky-dory for the people of Israel? No, we just went through all of Ezra and Nehemiah. They were surrounded by enemies, taunted, threatened. Gates were burned down again. Kings went against them back and forth. Kings changed their mind left and right. Inside, the people of Israel were sinning against God. They were sinning against one another. They were failing to obey God. They were abandoning their projects that God sent them to do until God had to send prophets and wake them back up again. They kept walking away from God, what God told them to do. Time and again, it was all of this trial. So it was like one step forward and ten steps back. It was an absolute mess. And yet, when we get to the end, we see that through it all, God was behind the scenes quietly fulfilling all of his promises. Through the mess and in the mess, God was faithful. Christian, is your life pretty messy sometimes? Does everything in your life go exactly according to plan? How about this world? You look out at this world and say, it's exactly the way I want it to be. It mirrors exactly what God's word said it should be doing. What about the church? Is the church perfect? Has the church been one spotless lamb from all of its creation when Jesus ascended and said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and he's going to enable you to, to keep my law? Has the church been just one uh, sterling example to the world of how to follow God? But you see, if Ezra and Nehemiah can teach us anything, it can teach us that God fulfills his promises no matter what happens in between. God is not hampered by our mess. In Ezra and Nehemiah's day, what kingdom looked like the place where God was building his church? In Ezra and Nehemiah's day, what place had all of the glitz, all of the glamour, all of the glory, all of the money, all of the wealth? What kingdom in Ezra and Nehemiah's day was on the right side of history? It was Persia. That's where it looked like God was doing everything. Nobody would have picked Judah. Nobody would have picked a burned down piece of rubble in the middle of nowhere. And yet that's exactly where God was building his kingdom. Christian, how impressive is the church to this world? Sometimes I think about how weak the church seems. Sometimes I think about how weak this seems. We should be out there doing stuff 
Instead, we're in here listening to me talk from a book. What good will it do? You see, God chooses the weak to shame the strong. God works through the messes of this life. Judah seemed like the last place God would be working. The church seems like the last place God would be working. And the most absurd of all places for God to be working would have been a Roman cross. Of all the places in the world that would have seemed like disaster, like failure, it was the cross upon which Jesus hung and upon which God fulfilled all of his promises. 